Stretching beneath the vast central Queensland plains, from cane to sapphires and cattle country, snakes the rich coal seams that are the livelihood of hundreds of small communities. 4RFM are on a quest to unearth, not coal, but the untold stories of the coalfields. Join us, Brianna and Elena, each month as we travel through towns, pubs and waterholes to seek out mysteries, ghosts, UFOs and strange phenomena. You're listening to 4RFM, untold stories of the coalfields. Located between the townships of modern-day Capella and Thierry sits a beautiful little oasis called Lilyvale. Seemingly in the middle of nowhere, this spring-fed waterhole is now surrounded by an impenetrable border of bulrushes, and the low-level water is covered in duckweed so dense it looks like you could walk across it. There's a beautiful little wooden boardwalk out there now, which is really sweet, and seeing as Lilyvale is now on the camps list, on our visit there, there was a couple of camps down by the water near the little causeway. Growing up in Thierry, Lilyvale was our go-to place. So back in the 80s and 90s, it was forever bustling with families and people from across the region. You could sometimes snag a day where you had it all to yourself, but not very often. And I can remember the disappointment of coming down over the hill and seeing a car park down there already and knowing that you had to share your space and had to share the swing. It wasn't a clear-to-the-bottom spring. It was proper CQ mud on entry and exit. You know, the big muscles you had to move out of the way as you were getting in with that boiling hot top layer that you had to duck dive to get to the cool water underneath. There was a few bulrushes at either end, the top end and the bottom end, but no one ever really went that fast because the main attraction was the swings. So on the other side of the waterhole stood massive leaning Malaluka trees with little hand-cut steps, you know, that the boys had chipped into these trees leading up to various levels of swing. So the higher levels were for the bravest and the strongest, and I've seen lots of kids come undone halfway up or just almost... (laughs) almost making it there. So the blood, sweat and tears of many Thierry kids are in the soil of Lilyvale. But speaking of which, that brings me to the legend of Lilyvale. So like I said, it was the go-to place for so many of us, but as always, anything good comes with a price. And it wasn't just the swings that you had to summon up bravery for. It was just getting in the water at all. Because Lilyvale, you see, has its very own ghost. So we're talking about Johnny the Chinaman. Or Jimmy. <laughs> Johnny, what you read? <laughs> he's he's Johnny on the um, in the cemetery list. He's Johnny list, but some information has him as Jimmy, referred to as Jimmy. I don't know. But so the story goes that Jimmy, Johnny, <laughs> the Chinaman, he was a he had a vegetable garden out at Lilyvale when it was a township. And now you said he was wealthy. You've found? Well, no, he was a gambler. I was a gambler. But he also was the person you went to if you needed some money. If you had to go to Rocky for something, he was really, he was known for giving giving money. Obviously, there was enough respect that he always got it back. Yep. So yep. he was well known and respected despite and being so, a gambler, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> <I know. laughs> well, like we were saying, you would have, if he was able to give out money, he was obviously doing very well with his vegetable garden and his vegetable business. So Johnny had a wagon or a dray and he had a ship's tank on there that he used to fill with water uh, to water his vegetable garden. The bank out at Louisville is quite steep, but he used to do this every day. He would back his wagon down. He had a stump down there that he used to know to back to. He'd back down, fill the tank with these buckets and go back up and water his veggie garden. But on this day, on the 10th, 1870. Yeah, so he missed the stump that day back in 1870 and him and his dray and his horse I guess went over into Lilyvale and they were drowned. 30 feet drop. Yeah. So So it must have just been heavy and just taken him down. Yeah. Unlucky. It is very unlucky. You do that every day, one mistake. Imagine losing your only vegetable garden, man. Yeah, damn it. (laughs) 
Girl said. <laughs> and the guy loaned everyone money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Doesn't he still say. owned him money. Doesn't say if he had children or a family or anything, no. so we don't know that. But yeah, no, you're right. If he had a big bill, be laughing. <laughs> so the story goes that Johnny Chinaman's ghost still is out there at Lilyvale. And there's lots of reports of people camping out there overnight and hearing screams, hearing blood curdling screams in the night, which, you know, are kind of unexplained or just it's just a really eerie kind of feeling place to camp out there at night. And it be there used to be a big uh, windmill that is still there. The the tower is still there, but the blades have all gone. But that used to creak a lot at night, which was pretty scary. And then at one point, someone had rigged up a like a flying fox across the creek, and there was a wheel on there, I think, or pedals, and, you know, the little reflectors. Mm. So if you look down there, you could sometimes see something like reflecting back out of the middle of the waterhole, which was pretty scary. But um, there is lots of ghost stories, and there is a ghost story going way back. What year did they move the town? In the 1800s still? Yeah, still in the 1800s. Yeah, so this story is from then. So it says, At the time of the shift of the township to the present site of Capella, of course the amusement facilities all moved also. So a young ringer from the area of Red Rock on the eastern side of Lilyvale was going to Capella on a young horse to a sports day and had to camp at the waterhole. He hobbled his horse and camped the night, and in the morning after tea and damper, he caught his horse and unhauled it and led it to the camp to saddle up. When he was putting the saddle on this freshly broken-in horse, he accidentally dragged the stirrups over the horse's rump. The horse pulled away and took off. At the same time, a voice called, You're not much of a ringer, are you, boy? The ringer threw the saddle and gear in a small pump shed nearby and took off on foot toward Capella. He pulled up at Old Gordon and sat on a log to roll the necessary smoke and have a spell when the same voice said, That was a good run, ringer. The ringer yelled at him, Not as good as the one we're going to have to Capella, and took off. So... That's a like 1800s ghost story, which is pretty. So cool. is that supposed to be Johnny? I guess so, but he would be speaking in a accent, Chinese accent. So <laughs> could be any number of these. How scary! Guys. You hear something, you run like for like an hour or so. You get somewhere else, and you hear that voice again. So we went over to Capella to do a little bit of research on this podcast and we met a lovely couple named Joe and Estelle who live in Capella and Joe's an author and has numerous books published from bush poetry, collections of stories from his childhood growing up in Emerald in the 50s, a book on the happenings and yarns on the CQ cattle stations, a historical account from family stories told from the sawmills in Queensland. And he did he was talking about, I think he's going to do his next books about all the butchers from oh, yeah. central Queensland region, which is... Pretty cool. Um, So after chatting to Joe, it is clear that he loves a good yarn and loves to preserve and collect local stories and history and put that into print, which is so important as a lot of these stories are just lost as locals pass on. So we speak to Joe in this podcast and he lets us know a little bit more about Johnny, the ghost, and a lot more about Lilyvale and Capella in general. Well, I came to Capella in 1968. Got married to Estelle in 1966 in Emerald. Estelle's a Claremont girl and I'm an Emerald boy. And we came to live in Capella. We bought the butcher shop of my father. We bought a house in Capella and we had our family here. And we sold the house uptown in, in 78 and built Old Stone here we are today. Uh, yeah. And you were out managing a property for a long yeah, time? Yeah, managed Capella Downs from 82 to 2020. And we farmed there from 96 to 2020. And we did contract mustering and farming and all sorts of stuff, but mainly contract mustering. In the 90s, we signed up Leichhardt Tours. It was a drought year, and uh, we had a little four-wheel drive bus. We called it Leichhardt Tours, and we had horse riders, and we'd take 
had one day, two day, three day, four day trips in the peak range. And we'd uh, camp every night and Estelle would cook in the camp oven and we'd sleep in swags. And, yeah, it was great fun. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And so between everything you've done, you would know a lot of this countryside then, hey? Sure have, yeah. Seen a lot yeah. and you've collected a lot of cool stuff. Yep, collected a lot of fossils from the area and uh, mustered every property on the peak range over all these years. Seen all the Aboriginal caves and sites and, yeah, had some great times. to Lilyvale and uh, Joe and Estelle showed us around and it's just like a massive big vacant allotment really yeah, isn't just it a big no vegetation just a big open space hmm. and it kind of has drops a, off down to the water yeah, yeah has a shed there and a um, windmill that, an old windmill a broken windmill hmm. that used to terrify us as children because it used to just move real slow and creepily especially at night make a creaky it's terrifying <laughs> yes it's quite hard to get anywhere near the actual water hole because it's so overgrown with bulrushes but it's quite nice it is nice it's spooky though it's hot it's a v- such a big open just nothing there the agaves yes and a weird mushroom thing oh yes <laughs> back when they had the um, centenary in 1988 which was on Australia Day which we did learn during this was that was the day that Leichhardt's Explorer found Lilyvale. Okay and that's when the shed was built too the big shed yes. that's there. Yeah so they had this big someone built this big mushroom thing like the ones at Airly in like the splash pools and stuff. Yeah it's like a water shooting mushroom but yes. back in 1988 that would have been pretty new technology. Yeah it was and that was its first and only hurrah so it ran for that day for the centenary day while we were all out there and they never, ever ran it again. So I <laughs> wish they did. It was fantastic. So random. <laughs> it's random. See, they had miners about that could do stuff like that. So they're like, okay, we want something cool, build it, and then walk away. Yeah, and it's still there as a memorial to <laughs> its one short life. <laughs> uh, and like we said, the agave or sisal plant is there. And that was imported from Mexico in the early 1800s. And it would have been used in the township for medicinal uses. So... The leaf tea or tincture taken orally treats constipation or flatulence. Uh, Tea made from the roots, if taken orally, can treat arthritic joints. The sap mixed with sulfur is made into an ointment for the treatment of sores and ulcers. And when dried out and cut into slices, the flowering stem forms natural razor strips. It had those little... Thorny looking things on it. The express juice of the leaves will lather in water like soap and string can be made from the dry leaves. So it's quite a versatile plant and it's huge and it takes out takes up a lot of real estate out there at Lilyvale. And that's what Joe was saying where you usually see that, because you do see big clumps of agave just randomly in the bush sometimes. I know that we certainly have lots in our lifetime and wherever you see it that means that there were there was a settlement nearby. So he said that agave would have been brought out by the Teamsters which I guess they would have had lots of sores and flatulence being yes. drovers. And there were hotels in the town. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and it's pretty much just surrounded by coal mines now and it's about what? how far out of Capella? 20Ks I think. 20Ks. The township of Capella, it wasn't first, was it? It was Capella Creek. Capella Creek. And Lilyvale yeah. was established because it had the permanent water hole. Capella Creek didn't always run, so there was water there. And where the township is, there was well country. You could dig a well down to 28 feet and get water. So the, the explorers found Lilyvale, the, yes, the, the water yeah, hole? Yes, John Gilbert, Leichhardt's explorer and man, he, uh, man, he found it in uh, 18, January 1845, January 26th, Australia Day. Oh, 
there you go. It was the day he was there on Nilly Waterhole. And Leichhardt was sick and his camp in. He died of thirst over on Calvert's Peak. His tongue was swollen, he couldn't talk, and they drank gallons of black cold tea was the cure for dehydration in those days. Did it work? I still yeah. carried on. Yeah, well. Lift the tail for a while. <laughs> there you go. So when they found Lilyvale, that when they found that it was, because it's a spring-fed waterhole. Yes, it was. Yes. It was, yes. It was. So that was established to be a good place as any to set up a town. That's right, yes. Okay, so the town, Lilyvale, is 200 kilometres from Rockhampton and was discovered by John Gilbert on the 26th of January 1845, who was working with Ludwig Leichhardt, who was the explorer who came through the Peak Downs Shire, also through here. They decided it was a good spot because of the natural spring water and permanent water supply, and it became Lilyvale, named for the lilies that grew there in abundance. And there was lilies there, hey, when yeah, we were there? Yeah, there was yeah. lilies. It was once a prosperous town settled in 1860 and home to Teamsters who traversed the route from Aramac to Rockhampton in the 1800s. Now, there's nothing left of the town, neighbouring Crinham and Gregory Mines, but for a single headstone from the cemetery and a memorial plaque. There are records of blacksmiths, butchers, storekeepers, publicans, labourers, graziers and even a boilermaker who all called Lilyvale home. Mrs O'Reilly used a bush baker's oven to supply the town with bread and Mr O'Reilly supplied the town with meat which was mostly goat's meat. There were two general stores, one conducted by John Roxburgh, who died and was buried in the little cemetery there, and the other store was run by Gordon and Davis. Gordon also died and was buried at Lilyvale. At its height, Lilyvale had a population of 200 to 300 people. That's a fair bit, hey? Yeah. And there were hundreds of Teamsters travelling through because Rockhampton was the port, and they took wool and gold and copper uh, from Clermont and provisions to the biggest stations. So Lilyvale's economy relied heavily on Cobb and Co. Emerald and Comet at this stage didn't even exist, and to get to Claremont, you had to go through Lilyvale. So in 1883, when they built a railway line through there, it pretty much signalled the end of the town. So Lilyvale's reason for existence gradually disappeared and people went elsewhere. The last recorded birth there was in May 1887, and that was of Arthur Charles Balfour, whose father, Greg Balfour, was the storekeeper. By 1890, the township was all but gone. Everyone transferred to Capella, and even the headstones of the cemetery, some of which withstood the elements until the early 1960s, have succumbed to the repeated flooding of Crinham Creek and have disappeared underneath the silt, all except for one. Yeah. Which is the memorial that's out there. And they found that. So they found that in the um, culvert beside the road, didn't they, when they were doing some earthworks or something? And so they think that that is... They don't know where the cemetery actually stood, but they assume just by other cemeteries around the area where they put them near a creek, they assume that it's under the road there that Mm. goes over Crinham Creek. So that's a bit sad, isn't it? Yeah, I did read online there was an article... Actually, I think it's here. Oh, the really old one? Yeah, and there was st- there was still a cemetery there when that guy went wooden, through. I can remember reading that. He said there was a wooden wooden headstone still standing. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like 18, 1960s or something like that. So it was still like some sort of evidence that there was a cemetery there. Yep. But then they went and put a road over it. <laughs> well, remember when we went to the Clermont Cemetery and there was... Not much left because they were the because the headstones were made of the tin. Yeah, so or all just the inscriptions wooden were gone. Yeah, markers. So there's like so many bodies with no evident headstones because time had just worn them away. Yeah. The co wagons come through bringing the stuff to the goldfields, and Cobb and Co come along after they found a crossing at Bedford Crossing and Mackenzie. That was where the wagons came to the Teamsters. 
and uh, the little township was set up there, so they become pubs and saddler shop, and post office, and all sorts of things there. The doctor was there. So they had a two-story pub. Two-story pub. Earlier. Yeah. There was a couple of hotels, but one was two-story. Okay. Oh, a couple of pubs yeah, out there. Yeah. Gosh, all these, all the gold fields and any fields always had a few pubs, didn't they? Yeah, talking, <laughs> talking thirsty, those old fellas. <laughs> and it was an established little community. <laughs> yes. Yes. And what made what made the shift? So why? Well, the railway line came through from Emerald to Clermont, and that was what made Lilyvale. When the tan, when the railway line got to Comet, Colburn Car went from Comet to Lilyvale to Capella. And once they got to, the railway line got to Capella, they moved, Lilyvale moved into town. And by 1930 it was, was abandoned, there was nothing left there. So Capella lays claim to the origin of the emu plume worn in the slouch hat of the Australian Light Horseman. An inscription on a plaque, which is at the monument in the Capella town centre, gives this explanation about Capella and the origin of the emu plume. The Great Shearer's Strike started north of Capella on the 5th of January 1891 at the Fairburn-owned Logan Downs Roll Call. While no conclusive evidence exists on where the emu plume's tradition began, Sir George Fairburn's family history anecdote is that a detachment of mounted infantry troopers guarding a gang of non-union shearers at Peak Downs rode down to Capella Creek one day when things were quiet and shot an emu. Each took a handful of feathers and placed them in the band of his hat. From then on, it became tradition for troopers to wear the emu plume. They became a symbol of the Queensland Mounted Infantry and were eventually incorporated into the Australian Light Horse. When the Queensland Mounted Infantry became part of the Light Horse, they insisted that they bring their emu plumes with them and there was a bit of resistance from the top brass for this. They eventually got their way and it was only the Queensland units that could wear the emu plumes, but the other units had their own ideas and they all started wearing them eventually. Today, the tiny town of Capella still has not forgotten the part they played in Australian military history and placed in the centre of town is a four-piece statue commemorating the fact, which is really nice. It is really cool. I like that. (laughs) Now, George Fairburn's family history, George Fairburn is the station owner of that house that we saw at the Capella Museum. Ah, he built that house. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, if you ever head over there to the um, Capella Historical Centre, that's Pride and Place. That big, the house there, the homestead. You can go and have a look at it. It's incredibly well made. Mm. It's valued at over a million dollars. The house. Mm. Oh, wowzers! Yeah. Holy moly! It is. It's pretty beautiful. Solid. It's just yeah. It's insane. You need to go and have a look. It's the planks of wood that yeah. It's not going anywhere. And it had a creepy soon. doll. It did have a super creepy doll. We'll put the pictures up. <laughs> if you want to see them on our Facebook page or on our website. Okay, so heading on from the Emu Plumes, the military that were there, they were guarding the non-union shearers. So this rolls around to another pretty important part that Capella plays in the history of Queensland, the Arbour Bridge. So on March 19th, 1891, Capella camp strikers attempted to persuade free labourers on a heavily guarded train to not continue to George Fairburn and Sons Peak Down Station. So this is an, an article from an old newspaper. So in the Australian press, this became known as the Peak Downs Riot. The strike soon spread to the central west of the state and several thousand unionists gathered at the Barkwalden Railhead. A number of woolsheds were burnt down, strike leaders charged and most received large jail sentences. The strike eventually failed, but it highlighted the need for a political party to represent the workers. It was a key event in the formation of the Australian Labor Party. Hmm. Now, what this article online didn't say was how long that this went on for. So these strikes and these, you know, interactions between the shearers and then the non 
unionists went on for months and months and months and it was so yeah free workers sorry and you know and with the wool shed stations and the station owners so you know not only were wool sheds burnt down it says people were jostled I love jostled in brackets I don't know what that (laughs) I do know what that means but I like that they just call it jostled but there was swords and rifles and all sorts of sabotage linchpins pulled from wagon wheels and just it went on and on and on and all over the whole region so and at one point the police inspector at the time John Ahern described the itinerant rampaging unionists at Clomont on the 22nd of February 1891 as the greatest ruffians in Australia which I'm sure was a very big sass back then Um, so where the Arbour Bridge is concerned, so where it says in that, what I just read, that the unionists attempted to persuade the workers, what it means is that they attempted to derail a train. So they got underneath and they put saw cuts into the timbers of the bridge, but someone snitched and um, they were arrested before anything kind of went down. And, you know, it says there that the strikes ultimately failed, but they won in the long run because they did get to form the Labour Party, which is why it's very important to vote. So the historical centre was where we went and got um, our first stop when we went over to Capella and met Joe and Estelle over there, but some other parts of Capella. So the Capella Piney Village, it's massive. So what are we? It's got the house there, which we went through. Lots of big sheds. The big wool shed, which There's was a, a whole replica. shed of tractors. Yes, like a massive shed of tractors. <laughs> massive with masses. Lots of masses. <laughs> <laughs> shed was huge, but yeah, just lots of bits and pieces. It's probably the best rural museum I've there ever been to. There was the shed that just had all the media stuff in it. Oh, that yes. was super cool, especially for us. Yeah, that was really good. It was like old cinema equipment and oh, cameras and just like a dark room. Yeah, reels and stuff. It was really good. There was a bunch of rooms, just old rooms showing lots of old clothes and people have donated different outfits, which that was pretty cool. Our bookcase is there. I'm so excited that that was my bookcase. We had a bookcase of encyclopedias, which is in my mum donated to the museum, and it's now sitting in the old room. I wish I had a grab. There was something really interesting there, and it had all the creek names. Ah, yes, and how so, they came about. Yeah, yeah, I think one day we'll look into that a bit more for a further podcast. Do have to. Why the creeks around here cool? If anybody's got any, you know, like Dead Man Creek tips for and Dead Police Creek. That's Dead Horse Creek. There's lots of there. Well, we've got platypus, which I'd like to know. Was there platypus out here once upon a time? Hmm. Yeah, so there is lots of stuff there, but there is lots of other stuff in Capella. The Capella Piney Village Heritage Day is held on the second Saturday in September in non-COVID periods. Then there's the Lighthorse Monument that um, Brianna just talked about. Peak Range Lookout. So you travel one kilometre south of Capella to the Peak Range Lookout to take in the beauty of the peaks. Chain of prominent and picturesque mountains. The Capella Covered Arena, which is located at the Bridgman Park Sporting Complex. Coincidentally, Joe is a Bridgman. Um, the arena is the largest arena of its type in Australia. It's the venue for concerts, sporting events, as such as cutting, camp drafting, rodeos and gymkhanas. The Capella Cultural Centre, which is, yeah, it's a great big, as it says, cultural centre. You go there and watch movies and performances. The Capella Aquatics Complex, which we will talk about later. It features five solar heated pools, a gym, squash courts, barbecues, waterside and cafe. And there are 30 murals painted on light poles and walls along the peak down street depicting Capella's history. Hmm. And there's a pub. We went to the pub yeah, for lunch. Yeah, there's a pub. <laughs> <laughs> no, no we didn't have lunch. Pub. We had beer. We did have beers there. It is a really cool looking pub. So what happened to Lilyvale site once they moved the town? Obviously, oh, it was just a camping and watering reserve for travelling stock, and all the locals had to swim there, and all the station people went into the station. They would picnic there and swim there, and there was fish there, 
yeah. a few different species. 13 different varieties. Wow. Yeah. And turtles and... Turtles and uh, shrimps and, and uh, mussels and crochies. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And then uh, uh, when the Gregory Mine come along, they BMA got control of the site and uh, they, they had control of it. We did meet up with Joe and he showed us an amazing slideshow on his laptop, which we wish we could steal and keep for ourselves. But it had so many amazing photos, historical photos of the area and um, lots of interesting things. And when we went out to Lilyvale, there is a plaque out there and it has all the names of the people that are buried in the cemetery. In the Lost Cemetery. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about that is we did find a few stories Four children that all died on the same day are Maryards, so August, Ludwig and William, who were four, six and three, and then uh, Emily Byer, who was eight. And it turns out that they died in the flood that also affected Clermont. So they died in the 1870 flood. So most residents took refuge on the roof of the two-storey Lilyvale Hotel, but four children were drowned, and that was the four kids that were, yeah deceased on the 1st of the 2nd, 1870, on the plaque. And so the shed out that stands out at Lilybell now is where the two-storey hotel used to be. Mm-hmm. So that is a very long way from the water. Mm. That's right. Well, it, it was the height of the flood was 17 feet over the flat. Wow. So it roared wow. down there. So that was the first big flood in Claremont that, yeah, that killed a lot of people over at Claremont. Yeah, it also killed, obviously, quite a lot of people in Lily Bells. Yeah. Um, And also, what piqued our interest was David Belfower and Mary Roxburgh, who were both 17 and both died on the same day. And we can't get any clarifying information about why this would be, why two 17 year olds died on the same day. And yeah, the internet is not a great deal of help at all in this scenario. They are both families that are mentioned. In lots of Lilyvale history, so they're obviously uh, a big part. Of yeah, like their reigning community. families. Yeah, but what? So what? What was your? Um, so my we're, theories. We're, we're wildly speculating here <laughs> because we're allowed to. This is our creative twist on this. As I said, we can't find any any concrete evidence of what has happened to these two. So we left it to ourselves to. Yeah. Make so it. I said romance gone wrong. Nice. Classic tale of Romeo and Juliet. Boring families, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because of that, so William Roxborough died only six months later at age 52. So I'm assuming that's Mary's dad. Oh, okay. Maybe oh. he found out about their romance, killed them in a rage, and then died of grief like six months later. There you go. Because that's pretty coincidental, right? It is coincidental. It was the 1800s, so people did die. <laughs> really, really easily. <laughs> well, six months before there had been a typhoid outbreak, so I was ah. like, maybe they both died of typhoid. Unfortunate and kind of weird that two 17-year-olds would die on the same day. On the same day. Of typhoid. We, um, we've got uh, 17-year-olds and had 17-year-olds, so we know that's a bit suspicious that two of them should die on the yeah, same day. Yeah, <laughs> and male and female. Or I thought maybe they went for a midnight hookup in the waterhole and Johnny pulled them under. That was my theory too. <laughs> they drowned. <laughs> Yes. So that was 1885. Johnny died in 1870. He, they could have been his first victims. Oh, maybe. They'd never know. <laughs> but if like anyone out there knows what happened to David and Mary, yes, we'd love to hear. It. It's a very, and yeah, it's just very unusual. Like we said, the, the four children that died on the same day, 
we've got reasons for that, mm. but these two. So there is a lot of tragedy out at Lilyvale. I'm sure it was a wonderful uh, place in its time, but all of these places were tragedies, really. And Everything wild. We've kind of looked at, yeah, there's, you know, the mortality rate was not very high. As you can see here, what's the oldest on our cemetery list? 75. Oh, oh, yeah. There's a couple of 66. Yeah, that's a good run. Hmm. But the majority of them are young. But um, there is a, a very tragic kind of family out there, and they do feature on this list as well, the Slater family. So this was this is from a story online. So this is the double tragedy for the Slater family. So Alexander and Sarah's two daughters were born in Lilyvale. Margaret Isabella on the 15th of August 1876 and Sarah Jane on the 29th of October 1878. So in the remote communities of Banana and Lilyvale, Sarah became the local midwife, but this meant that there was no obstetric care for her during and after childbirth. So within a week of Sarah Jane's birth in 1878, Sarah Stewart died from postnatal complications on the 3rd of November, aged 31 years, and was buried in Lilyvale Cemetery the following day. The Rockhampton Morning Bulletin reported her passing on the 12th of November, 1878, thereafter. Slater, on third instant at her residence, Lilyvale, the beloved wife of Mr. Alexander Slater, blacksmith, leaving a loving husband and six children to mourn their loss, deeply regretted by all who knew her, aged 31 years. So, six kids. Unlucky when you're midwife. the midwife and then you've got no one to look after you. How horrible. That's sad. But following the death of his wife, Alexander took his young family to the gold and copper mining town of Clermont, 120 kilometres north of Lilyvale, where Sarah's sister Margaret lived with husband George Rice Rankin and their three children. So Margaret Rankin looked after five of Alexander's six children. She arranged for the local baker, Peter Turner, and his family to care for the newborn Sarah Jane. Less than six months after his wife passed away, Alexander Slater died on the 25th of April, 1879, aged 37 years. His death was reported in the Peak Downs Telegram and Copperfield Minor on the 26th of April, 1879. As such, about nine o'clock last night, Mr. Alexander Slater, late of Lilyvale, died suddenly at the Prince of Wales Hotel, we believe from a disease of the heart. He had been suffering for some years from the complaint and yesterday afternoon while in town he became seriously ill and was attended by Dr. Candiotis. Apologies to the pronunciations <laughs> people out there. Um, but it was not till shortly before his death that friends entertained any serious apprehensions of a fatal termination of the malady. He was 35, in brackets 37, years of age. His wife died only a few months ago, leaving six children. The deceased has recently been staying with his brother-in-law, our present mayor. He was a native of Glasgow. So Alexander Slater was buried in the Clermont Cemetery. Left with five orphan children to care for, as well as her own children, and having lost her only son, Oscar, in a horse-riding accident four months later in August 1879, Margaret Rankin was overwhelmed and found new homes for all of her nieces and nephews. How horrible! See? What an unbelievably tough life these people so had. was. God, okay. Sarah Jane Slater was formally adopted by Peter Turner. The Turner family later moved to Sydney, New South Wales. It was not until Sarah Jane was an adult that she discovered her true Slater ancestry and searched for her siblings. So Two- Sarah Jane was the baby. Yes. Yep. yep. Two-year-old Margaret, Isabella Slater, was given to Clermont publican Thomas Colleen. She hated living with the family and over the years ran away on two occasions, once to Longreach, which is a very Holy, long way. that is far. <laughs> Just a jump to freight train. 
Uh, two-year-old Robert Andrew Slater was taken in by the butcher Tom Walsh and schoolteacher Dolly Walsh of Capella, who also learned the trade of a butcher. James Alexander, in brackets Jim Slater, and George Stewart Slater became teamster assistants and travelled with bullock teams. <laughs> there were probably five and six. Yeah, so the older ones. ones. <laughs> Back in Glasgow, ailing widower Robert Slater Sr. died on the 1st of May 1881 from chronic bronchitis aged 68 years. So his death was noted in the Glasgow Herald on the 3rd of May, 1888. So he was the kid's granddad. Yes. Who was in England. In Glasgow, yep. This is his death notice. Suddenly at 72 Dale Street on the first instance, age 69, Robert Slater, blacksmith. Friends omitted. Please accept this as our intimation. American papers, please copy. I don't know why that's relevant. Anyway, his wife Isabella had passed away almost four years earlier from a stroke on the 20th of July, 1877, aged 61 years. So Robert Slater's will was probated on the 10th of June, 1881. He bequeathed his shipwright business to his third son, James, and split his residual estate into four equal shares, a share for each of his three sons and another for his grandson, Robert McPherson, the son of his late daughter, Jane. The will directed that Robert Jr.'s share be held for two years while unsuccessful, in brackets, attempts were made to locate him or her heirs. Failing this, his share was divided across the remaining beneficiaries. Public notices were placed in Australian and New Zealand newspapers in an effort to trace his whereabouts. In the 1870s, United States Federal Census, Scottish Stevedore Robert Slater Jr. was listed as living in Joseph Petty's Hotel in Portland, Oregon, USA. So Alexander Slater's share was held in trust for his six orphan children. The boys were entitled to their shares of the inheritance once they turned 21 years of age, but the girls could only have their inheritance when they turned 21 years of age or when they married, whichever came first. Of course they had to, because they were girls. Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, the money was not distributed fairly or evenly to Alexander Slater's children. So in 1889, aged 20 years, Sarah Jane Slater married German-born Henry Wasmuth in order to gain her inheritance early. She left him the following day. (laughs) On your Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) However, the Turners, which was her stepfamily, bought a hotel with Sarah Jane's money. So... She lost. Oh. I don't. The last to make a claim, Robert Andrew Slater, received nothing. So what about the other kids? Well, says money does change everything. For the orphan Slater children in Australia, it created mixed fortunes. The inventory of movable property in Robert Slater's estate was in excess of 5,200 sterling, in addition to real estate in Tradeston, Govan and Eaglesham. In 2006, it was calculated that... 5,200, what did I say, sterling from the year 1881 was worth 360,000 pounds using the retail price index and more than 2.5 million pounds using the average earning method. So, yeah, that's just So it was worth $2.5 million. It was worth 2.5 million, but they didn't, none of them got any. Well, the orphan, it does. It says the orphan, the boys were entitled to their share. So the boys got it. One of the girls must have got it. Sarah Jane's step family took it. Mm. And then the last one to make a claim, there was none left, so he got nothing. I'm lucky. It's really. They were jinx from birth. It's really shit. They were jinx from birth. <laughs> but another intriguing Lilyvale story is hinted at in a press report that we have found of a Mrs. Burns of Lilyvale who in 1886 was attacked by a suicidal maniac and who, when held in the Clermont lockup for her own good, attempted to cut her throat with a piece of steel from her crinoline, which a crinoline, crinoline, again, apologies for the pronunciation, is one of those giant metal hoops. Looks like a oh, they wear under their puffy pot. dresses. Yes, they wear under a dress. So she, she tried to slit her throat with it. Yes, so she Jeez. broke a piece off. She would have so. been better off getting some of that agave and drying it out. <laughs> so 
Yeah, Lily really, Bell's a bit crazy. Holy! <laughs> Johnny Chinaman. Johnny the Chinaman, yeah. You have the story of him? Yes, he carted water for his vegetables and he had a tank on a dray, a ship's tank. And he'd back it down into the water hole and fill the tank with a bucket. Anyway, one day he had a dump that he backed it onto, but he missed the stump and went over and he went in and got drowned. Yeah. Does anyone see the ghost? Is there any stories about that? Well, there's a story about the screaming owl. He called that night and where someone was getting a throat cut and it scares a lot of people. Oh. <laughs> now they claim it's the ghost of Johnny. Okay, so there's barking owls out there at Lilyvale. Barking owls have dark brown feathers, white spots on their wings, and grow up to about 40 centimetres long with large staring yellow eyes and are a very imposing bird. They look kind of like a falcon. They're not like a barn owl looking. They're a bit slimmer. So that might have been what we saw because we looked, we saw we something did that see. was like a falcon maybe. <laughs> I know. It was a barking owl. <laughs> I think it probably could have been. But so they do bark. So I'm going to play a snippet of them barking and it really sounds just like barking so they say they do this barking noise just before dusk they're also called wook wooks which you will know from this sound but they I can imagine Dan jumping up and yelling out the window at them because it does sound like a dog barking it's crazy but it says they are capable of eating everything from small insects to fish bats cockatoos ducks rats and rabbits so they're pretty scary just on their own. Hmm. They can swivel their heads to look around and search for prey, um, and they lay lots of eggs, and they live out at Lilyvale. So they, yeah, they are out there. But not only do they make this barking sound, <coughs> but they do make a noise which they call, and you can look it up, the screaming woman yell. So okay. there's, and I don't know if they make this sound when they're hunting or if they just make this sound in, like, mating season or something, but it is pretty terrifying and if you were camped out there by yourself and you heard it you would be pretty scared so i will play that and as you can see it does sound like a scream so is that who they think that's who joe thinks that's what joe thinks people might be confusing with Johnny that they might the ghost of Johnny the yeah. scream as he went under the water yeah is the is actually the barking out but you can judge for yourself hmm? So when we were talking to Joe, he had plenty of stories to tell and he did defunct an old wives' tale regarding the Capella Pool. So I have always been told that the Capella Pool was built there by accident. Yep. And that it was supposed to be Capella in some suburb of Brisbane. Yeah, Capella Bar. So yeah, I've always said that too. And that that's our that's where we used to swim all the time. That's where all our carnivals were. And we were told that too. I don't know where we initially heard it from, but yeah, the story goes that they're deliverers made a mistake I guess I just always picture a big truck pulling up and going okay this is such and such street compeller and dropping off uh you know bazillion acre pool and the council went of course you just yeah. build it here <laughs> oh yes this is ours I'll sign for it but whereas it was supposed to go to uh capella bar so anyway we we put that to the test and went to see if that was really true yeah what do you think joe there were journalists and some other people were cotton growers I think they were travelling from Emerald to Clermont and they got lost in the fog and they landed in Capella and they're walking from the airport in Capella down the road past the golf club to town and it's all foggy and I think the newspaper report says a local yokel picked them up and gave them a lift to town and that local yokel was my brother George and George told him this yarn about 
we both both bit this pool, and because there's only a little, little place to pillow, we got a corner each because there were seven pools, and it really took this bloke's imagination. He wrote it word for word, <laughs> and there he was horrified. He just <laughs> up in arms, and, and George said to John, "Think about it. Who would the local yokel be that could pick anybody up on that road? Because I'm the only bloke who lives up there." And a twig, yeah. <laughs> so you can tell a leg pull still good today as it was ever, as ever. <laughs> good to get that clarified. Yeah, and then the drought, there was all that water in that pool, there's a lot of water and the drought, dry time, so there was four big ladies in town, so they were paid to sit in the corner of each pool to get the water level up. Oh. <laughs> Some towns they close one lane, the swimming pool to save water. <laughs> sure it wasn't you who picked them up? No, it wasn't, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> So as you can see, sometimes legends are just that, legends, like the pool. But sometimes they end up being true. So we grew up my whole childhood just with hearsay about Johnny. There was no headstone there with his name on it. There was no newspaper articles on microfish that we could have looked up to find his story. Everything was just passed down from kid to kid over decades. So station kids to town kids, and that's just how we knew about it. So like a really long stretched out Chinese whispers and it turns out that it's actually true so there really was a Chinaman there really was Johnny so he really did meet his fate at the bottom of the Lilyvale waterhole which is crazy because it means that every picnic that we had down there beside the water every time we psyched up to get in and swim flat out as fast as we could across that waterhole every duck dive you went down to get out of the hot water every boozy evening that we spent up on the bank when we were older that was all done with Johnny right there underneath the water So as to whether the ghost is still there, I guess, like Joe said, it could just be the owls. But every 80s and 90s Thierry kid out there will tell you otherwise. And I challenge anyone to spend a night out there and not just feel his presence. It's got an eerie presence. It does. does. But I don't know if that's a history thing as well. Yeah, I agree. And that's what I mean. There's too much tragedy and too much history for there to be nothing out there, to be no energy out there at all. And... But then there's so much stuff that we don't know. So it's only people like Joe who take the time to look back into it and to write these things down hmm. is how we get these stories. That's right. So it's, yeah, really important. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's amazing the history that is here that's hidden. And I've sort of collected stories for many, many years. I like to talk to people and I'm horrified when people die and all their stories are lost and gone mm. forever. Yep. It's so sad. So a big thanks to Joe and Estelle for being our tour guides for this podcast, taking us into their home and making us lunch and showing us some amazing local artefacts and photos. Elena and I were lucky enough to be given a signed copy of one of Joe's books each and I can tell you that they are worth a read. Joe is such an easy-to-read storyteller and each book contains great historical photos and just a great record of local history and stories. So if you're interested in reading or purchasing one of Joe's books or for any information on Joe, you can go to Joe's Facebook page, which is just called Joe's Books, J-O-E apostrophe S Books, and you can order his books from there. And like I said, I think he's got two in the works, so always new additions coming out. And he's a great rock collector. He's got so many rocks. If you're into rocks, you need to meet this guy and go and check out all his rocks and um, fossils. It's fascinating so fascinating we could have spent all day there i don't our next podcast will be on mount britain Britain. slash nebo so anyone with any other information that they think we should chase up about that area 
please let us know. Otherwise, we'll be heading over to the Nebo Museum, over to the pub, because we just have to. Yes, uh, we might do some research <laughs> at the pub. Surely there's Lots information there. <laughs> and out to Mount Britain itself, of course, to check out all the artefacts out there. So stay, stay tuned. You've been listening to a 4RFM podcast sponsored by CBF. Yeah. <laughs>